So, how was it? Well, Rebecca said, loud, it was loud. Yeah, there's, a, there's acoustics in here. But it'd been loud if you were talking about what you did last weekend, right? What are our conversations usually at church? How you doing? How you doing? And what does everybody say? Fine, with that flat Texas eye. <laughs> uh, and do you know anything more than you did before you asked the question? Okay. All right. So how else do we talk? What other kinds of conversations do you have? Some of you are nodding, you do know more? Is that right? You do? So how do you ask the question, how are you doing to get more information than fine? Oh. Well, what's our normal question? How you doing? And the answer is fine. Fine. Okay. okay. <laughs> but there is a way to find out how people are really doing in there. So did you find out anything about how your, one of your sisters is really tonight? Did anybody find out something that would be meaningful in terms of what your sister's journey is and her growth? You don't have to tell us what. We're not going to ask you that. But you did. That conversation yielded some different connection with the person with whom you were speaking. What, what, um, what questions seemed the easiest to you? Tell, tell me about an influential woman in your life, okay? What makes that easier, Lauren? Because you're talking about somebody else, and you're talking about your own personal experience. You're talking about your experience, all right? Mm-hmm. And you're not having to venture out much of an opinion or information right. or how something's processing for you right now. It also requires more than a one-word answer. Okay. <laughs> Right, uh, and that's an important thing in conversation is either we are sharing something that furthers the conversation about ourselves, which will further the conversation because we've set the tone, or we're asking an open-ended question that doesn't have a monosyllabic answer. Uh, Fine's not monosyllabic in most of our cultures, but it is really. Um, that... Uh, <clears throat> So that, that's an important part of the conversation. Um, how many of you risked asking someone how you could pray for them this week? So a couple of you? Did that feel risky to the others of you that you just said, not going there? Or did you just not get to that question? You didn't get to it? You were trying to do all the questions? <laughs> <laughs> You just didn't get further enough and further along in your conversation. No, it's very uncomfortable. It's very that uncomfortable. Was the last question I was going to ask. That was the last question you were going to ask. What's uncomfortable about it? It felt too soon. Like, it felt too soon. Like, I mean, I like Kate. She's nice. But like, I don't know. It's, it's, a, very, it's a very weighty thing if you really mean it to ask. 
ask how to pray for somebody. And so mm -hmm. it seemed a little too soon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so you don't, you don't feel uh, confident or comfortable with that question <laughs> in, or with that conversation maybe real early in a relationship if you haven't really established it. Margaret? Mm -hmm. There's an obligation to actually pray and to follow up. So what that would say if you're having that conversation is, I'm interested in having further conversation. There was a commitment in that question. Margaret's exactly right. That's why a lot of us leave it alone. And yet, if you're leaving it alone wholesale 100% of the time, then your conversations with your friends, with your small groups, with the people that are your pew neighbors. Do y'all have pew neighbors? <laughs> I have pew neighbors. And if I'm, you know, if I'm, and if I'm not, you see, your, you're seeing your pew neighbors here. You're, and, if, and if I'm sitting week after week after week by my pew neighbor and never asking her at the end of the service or at some point, I'd really like to be praying for you. Um, you know, the little family that sits, that are our pew neighbors, her, when I brought, um, one of Sally Lloyd-Jones book to them, I didn't have them on my meal list when they had a baby. And so I brought this book to church and I said, you're my pew neighbors. And I wanted you, that woman has for the first time in the last two years, looked me in the eye every time I see her, she was running from me before. Um, but we have a conversation now and I can say, I said to her recently when she had her third child and she didn't go back to work, how's that going for you? How, what kinds of adjustments? And is your husband having to work a lot of overtime? And, and how can I pray for you during that time? And then six weeks later when I see her again, I'm going, I remember. And she looked at me like I had, as my son would say, lobsters crawling out of my ears. When I said, how was Christmas? Because I know that Kyle had to work a lot of overtime. I remembered it. That's God's grace. But uh, I, did, I did remember it and followed up with her. And that's the kind of conversation that's going to further our, our, our gospel-centered friendship in that relationship. What else did you observe about your conversation in yourself? Becky actually opened up, and then it made it much easier to respond to that. So Becky took the lead in sharing something about herself. And establishing that um, milieu or, or, or tone for the conversation. better word is tone for a conversation. So you got to have a risk takers. But I'm going to tell you what, there's enough women in this room. If you change the conversation, it will revolutionize this church. God will use it to revolutionize this church. If you're willing to risk just the tiniest bit of saying, you know, I was really impacted by the sermon on Sunday, and I want to tell you how. And one of the things that I struggle with is being flat on my face in a sermon, especially when we have communion. I think y'all have communion every worship service. Our church doesn't. And I'm, I'm weeping, and I'm willing to weep, have somebody weep with me. But I cannot make this code switch to talk about the LSU football game. I, I cannot do it. 
So I don't fit in sometimes in that. Sometimes I just have to go to Sunday school and sit by myself because the conversation in our coffee hour is so superficial that I'm at a place where I just can't go there. I can't enter into that. And the risk of that is you get labeled. But usually God sends me somebody to talk to there. And it seems a little more appropriate if you're in the Sunday school class instead of the coffee shop. And I'll ha I've had two different occasions in the last year where a woman who's my peer age-wise has said to me, well, I don't even think we need to go to Sunday school now. We've just already had Sunday school because I changed the conversation in the hallway. And my generation is not used to that. We're not used to talking about spiritual things in the hallway of the church. That's for the Sunday school class, but not for our relationships. Like having coffee to talk about spiritual things is really kind of weird to, to my generation, at least in my church, of 60 and older women haven't really experienced. Now, there are, you know, a few that are the serious Christians <laughs> in that. But we can change that conversation. So I'm challenging you that, and I think the riches that God might give to you would be pretty amazing. And it's a part, it's a real key to gospel-centered friendships and what we're going to talk about next. <clears throat> In addition to the whole concept of design and helper and divine sovereignty, which I talked a little bit about uh, in, the, um, in God's keeping us and finishing us, um, two defining theological concepts for me in my relationships especially um, are a covenant and community. Covenant and community. I did not grow up on the covenant pew, as I said. And so one of the most challenging, life-changing Bible studies my husband and I did together was a Bible study that our pastor taught on covenant. And he used some material that some Bible teacher had developed, but he started in the right place. This teacher started way down in the Noah, Noah, however you say that, the Noah covenant. And um, he started in Genesis and um, began to unwrap that whole idea of God's working through covenant. And it is precious to me. It has, it has totally changed my understanding of why I take meals to new babies, families, um, that they are my covenant children. And when I raise my hand, I'm taking a vow before God. I'm not promising those parents anything. I'm vowing before my covenant-keeping God that I'm going to be involved in the nurture and admonition of the Lord in that child's life. And so when I get asked to teach Sunday school, it's really not i got to pray about it because I already took that vow. Um, and that I have a covenant marriage that God established a covenant between me and my husband, that he kept that covenant even when we did everything we could do humanly to murder it. God kept that covenant. And Mark looked at me when we were about to Fort Worth this week, and he said, you know, it is just the most amazing thing that we like being married to each other. <laughs> it is amazing. We just can't believe what God has done, that we like being married to each other. I mean, there's some days I'm sure he'd be rather married to somebody else. But uh, in general, that's what God has done in that covenant keeping. 
But then it also goes to our friendships. And I want us to see that our friendships matter because God has established us in covenant with him and with one another. Another theological concept that has um, been defining for me is the idea of um, sanctification. And we discussed that a little bit in the first half of thinking about that. And what does sanctification really look like? And this is what I boiled it down to. It looks like faith and repentance. Repentance and faith. Faith and repentance is what it looks like. And that's the cycle of our Christian growth is faith and repentance. Looking at what Jesus, with the eyes of faith, looking at Jesus and seeing him for all that he did for us in our redemption and is doing in redeeming us and will do to finish us and looking at our own sin and need for him on a daily basis. So since the beginning of mankind, our susceptibility has been to false teaching. And I think particularly the scriptures make clear that the theology of women matters, that women's theology matters. What we believe about God, what we believe about our Redeemer, what we believe about God our Father, what we believe about our Redeemer, what we believe about the Holy Spirit, our teacher, our encourager, our convictor, matters. Who we say they are, what we believe about them. And it also matters what we believe about ourselves. What we, what we learn from the Scripture is true of us is also important, and that's theology. It's called the doctrine of man. And we suspend the doctrine of man regularly. When we say things like, I, I, mean, I had a, a friend years ago say this, I could never have an affair. That's a woman that does not understand the doctrine of man and our capacity for sin and our capacity for deceiving ourselves. Um, that is the utmost of arrogance to say that we could never sin in that way. That means we're better than David. We're better than Bathsheba, we're better than a whole bunch of people. And we think we are. We think we're better than Rahab. We don't know why she's in the, the genealogy of Christ. She's there because we're all Rahabs. And some of us may look different in that expression of being a Rahab, but we're all Rahabs. And, and we're capable of any sin. And it's only God's guarding spirit that keeps us from that. And that's where we, we, uh, our theology matters. In this um, particular instance about friendships, the scripture really leans in and addresses our woman-to-woman relationships. <clears throat> and I want us to look, <clears throat> especially how God does that through Paul in the letter to Titus. <clears throat> and I bet some of you thought I was going to start with Titus too. I'm not. I'm not going to start with Titus 2 because that's not where the letter to Titus starts. And if we take that Titus 2 passage out of context, we've lost the gospel. And we have a program and we have a neat little procedure and we have projects. We love to make young women our project. You know, we love to make the junior high girls our project because we're spiritually mothering them or whatever. I don't care what you call it. It's, it's not a project or a program. It is what God has called us to do in the way we love one another. And he starts that warning about our theology in Titus 1. 
<coughs> Sorry. In Titus 1, 9 through 10, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. He's talking about church officers, leaders. For there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. He's talking about legalism there and that you have to be circumcised to be in the body. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. So who's in those whole households? Women. Women are in those whole households. They are the, they are the ones who are being disrupted along with children and husbands. But the women are being disrupted by that meaningless talk and, um, and deception. And Titus is really different in the order, it seems to me, of the way Paul wrote to Titus in that he doesn't really begin to talk about the gospel until he gets to chapter 3. We're usually, Paul's letters start with the indicatives, start with what's true of us in Christ, and then he gives us the commands and the imperatives. Most of the, most of the epistles are in that order. In this one, he sort of reverses the order. I think that's so interesting. I really didn't think about that. I would have gone and asked one of our pastors why they thought that was the case, but I didn't have time until I got that thought. But anyway, Titus 3, 3 through 7, then we see the truth of that trustworthy message. See, Paul in Titus 1 has talked about the trustworthy message. What is the trustworthy message? In Titus 3, verses 3 through 7, <clears throat> this is the trustworthy message. Um, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There it is. That's the gospel. That's the whole gospel in those short verses. And that's the trustworthy message that we've been given entrusted, that we've had entrusted to us as women and as believers. But Titus is dealing with a particular way in which we as women have been entrusted with that trustworthy message. If you take the Titus 2 mandate or the Titus 2 imperative out of that context... You just become a better Pharisee or a better friend because it's the trustworthy message that we have to offer to our friends. It's not these other things that we get distracted by. In Titus 2, 9 through 10, again, Paul says, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. 
That's our calling, friends, is to adorn the gospel. We're not only helpers and allies, we are adornment for the very gospel of, the, our, of God our Savior. We are that adornment because who are the bondservants? Every believer in this room is the bondservant. We are that adornment. And that, again, thrills my soul to think that God would allow us to adorn, to make more beautiful the gospel of the doctrine of God our Savior. With that in mind, what do the scriptures teach about our friendships? What are the false teachings that hold us captive? And how is God working by his sanctifying grace to restore our friendships? And we're going to lean hard in this whole idea of the fall and how it's impacted our relationships because I think it's important for us to understand this grid, this gospel grid. But before we do that, think about creation. And I've given you some lengthy quotes, so I'm not going to read them. But in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, which we read earlier, those personal pronouns are plural. We and our and them. They're plural pronouns. They're not individual pronouns. They're not you individually or me, my. They're our. They're, they're talking about community. And so Tripp says, we've been created to live in two essential communities, a loving, worshipful, and dependent community with him, a loving, servant, interdependent community with one another. I want to tell you that interdependent word is a tripping point for me. My father raised us to be independent. He created monsters in some ways. Um, and my sister and I were raised by a very strong father and a somewhat dependent mother. And he did not want his girls to be dependent. And so he insisted we get an education. I mean, he's a believer. He insisted we get an education. He gave us a voice. He... Now, he didn't listen to our voice, but he wanted our, 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 our voice to be listened to by everybody else. He did listen to my sister's voice because, believe it or not, she's more persistent than I am. And uh, um, so that interdependent, because I didn't even need my husband, much less you. Uh, that was just my worldview, is that I was going to be independent. And if I invited you into my world, it was because it was convenient or felt kind of nice or whatever, but not because I was going to depend on you for anything. And, and, and Tripp is saying that we were created in the image of God to be interdependent, just as Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are interdependent. That's the reflection of the image of God. And then through the fall, our intimacy with God was destroyed again. And like we talked about earlier, and not only was the image of God in us destroyed by our sin, but our intimacy with one another was destroyed. Uh, and we became captive to despair, alienation, hiding, loneliness, self-protection, rigid sex, S-E-C-T-S, sex, and rigid, and rigid groups that are based on arbitrary factors, based on arbitrary factors like looks or money or ethnicity or gender or any other arbitrary fact. Our relationships became based on that because of sin, not because we were created to live in that 
kind of rigid division, and as I called it to the uh, group leaders this afternoon, balkanization of these, these rigid groups that don't get along with anybody except their own little group in that balkanization in our relationships. Um, and I want us to consider how these words echo in our hearts when we talk about our relationships. Shame, hiding, self-protection, defensiveness, blame-shifting. Those are the sin things that grip our hearts in our relationships and friendships, not just in our marriages, not just with our parenting, but in the relationships among you in this church. Those are the sin patterns and the sin habits and the sin that's deep within our hearts because of, our, because of the fall. I can remember being a 13-year-old girl. Most of you can remember being a 13-year-old girl. Have you ever met a nice 13-year-old girl? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was not pretty. And I can remember being bullied. I can remember being the bully. I mean, they don't call it that much. They didn't call it that then. But that's what it was, was bullying. And I'm watching my precious great-niece, who's essentially my granddaughter, because my sister's in heaven. And she's a sixth grader, going to be 13. She's in a Christian school. She cries every night. She cries every night over what? Meanness, sin, shame, people calling her names, people, you know, saying that she wore a, a stupid shirt to school, all of that kind of thing going on, and, and competition, and she's dishing out her share of it, I'm not naive, um, she's right in there mixing it up with all the rest of them, and that is our sin on display before there's a challenge. And if these kids are believers, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that they're, being, they're not being challenged with the gospel. They're being challenged with behavioral strategies to make them stop doing it. They don't work because it's sin in our hearts that's the motive for that. And so it's only the gospel that's going to begin to work in those things. And you know what? There's still 13-year-old girls in all of our hearts that say things like, I really don't want to be seen with her because she doesn't look the part. And I know that this group over here in the church is going to say, what in the world is she doing with that woman? There's that 13-year-old girl still in our hearts. Or the 13-year-old girl in our hearts that says, I got to dress like the fanciest dresser that I can see, you know, because I want to be accepted in that particular group or that particular genre and style. That competition goes on. And it's the corruptions of our longing for community. We try to grasp at it doing our look-alike contests and I mean, I remember thinking, even as an adult, several years ago, I, I had this one really elegant friend. I mean, elegant friend. And I thought, I'm going to try dressing like she does. Hmm, never mind that I have about a fourth the income she does. And never mind that if in my wildest imagination, I would never look like Jane. 
It's just not going to happen. It's like at 13, thinking that I would look as cute as my friend who had a size four foot. You know, I always wanted to be short and cute, and that just didn't happen. That's not how God made me. And so that all of that gets corrupted in our hearts as we struggle with those cultural attempts to satisfy the longings. Let me just name some cultural attempts we have to satisfy the longings. We, we, um, we have sororities, even if we were out of college. We still have sororities. Um, we have causes, and we gather together people that have the same cause we have. We have cliques. Um, we uh, redefine and deconstruct the whole definition of sisters and friends, and what does that mean? And we, we call everybody our friend. And I got with one of my very dearest lifelong friends who's a blogger. She and I have had this conversation because I'm going, what's the difference when you tell me I love you, sweet friend, and you're telling that to somebody in England that you've never met? I love you, sweet friend. How is that equal territory? I don't get that. And she goes, well, you just don't understand the blog, Barbara. You know, yeah, okay, I'm giving you that. But it's the same word. Well, it is different. You know that. It is really different. It is. But there's still that part of us that has deconstructed that word to where it really is meaningless in some ways. The rugged individualism that's applauded, that we are told as women we can lean into the political sphere, the corporate sphere, the social structures, that we, we can have the same traditions that men do of every man for himself in those other structures that really go against that longing for community, that say, I can live in isolation and individualism and fierce uh, independence, and I can thrive in that. I don't believe women can do that. I don't, I don't think it's in, I, I don't think believing women can do that. And I think it's a distorted view of womanhood for us to believe that we can. And then Paul Tripp says, that's not all. It's not just the cultural stuff. It's, I love the way he says this. We lose sight of the grand purposes of the kingdom of God when we expend all kinds of effort to build tiny little kingdoms of one. There's not a single woman in this room who's not a kingdom builder. We're building our own little tiny little kingdoms of one until God grips our heart and begins to, to... to change us and sanctify us. The misguided individualism of serving the kingdom of me, myself, and I. And it looks like this. Faith is private. I'm not going to have a conversation about faith. That's a private thing. Keeping up appearances so that nobody knows the sin struggle in my heart. Nobody knows that I'm struggling with pornography. And if, you, if you've got a church with this many women, you've got women that are struggling with pornography now. It's just a given. It is what it is. Fifty Shades of Grey sold more books in the first week than any book in the history of publishing. And Christian women bought it. And it is erotica. So that, that tells us that we are struggling with it. But we keep up appearances. Confession is between me and Jesus. That's a good one that we do in our individualism. Because the scripture calls us to confess to one another also. And to make that a part of our gospel-centered friendships. Now, does that mean that I'm to confess to everyone? No. Nor does it mean that I'm to search around for every sin to confess. It just means that when the opportunity presents itself, I'm to be confessing my sin 
to a sister and to a friend and with my husband so that we have that community of um, accountability. Two lies from the garden, Tripp says, lie of autonomy and the lie of self-sufficiency. The consequences of the fall on community, friendships, and relationships. And I want to tell you two principles. One is human tradition. There's an adage that you can't choose your family, but you can choose your friends. That's a lie if you're a Christian. Because God chooses your friends just like he chooses your family. He assigns you to a church, a Sunday school class, a small group, a neighborhood, your extracurricular activities. He chooses your friends. And when we start to choose in isolation, we think from what God has designed, we are in rebellion. Because we, we, are, we are blinding ourselves to the places where God has put us and the people whom God has put in our pathway. We're called to union with Christ, and regardless how we perceive our freedom to choose, God has given us particular assignments. He's placed us in a family. He's placed us with friends. He's, uh, I thought I chose Mark. I didn't choose Mark. God chose Mark for me. And you see that in the river you marry, as my husband would say. And um, he's chosen our church. He's given us a small group. Now, I know, I mean, I have friends that do small group leadership. And I know it's happened in our small groups, discipleship groups in our church. Our assistant pastor tells me about some of this. Doesn't give me names, but he'll say, so-and-so told me they were only going to come to discipleship group if they can be in this group. And so and so, this group, my, my friend that's a women's ministry director, this group said they are not coming anymore to their groups unless I leave them alone. They are not moving. They are going to be in their group until Jesus comes back. <laughs> and, that's in, and that's our own rebellion of saying we're not going to trust that God can assign us to a group. We're going to make it a click. We're going to make it our own little reflection of our own little kingdom in that way. Another common myth is that friendships can sort of be sacred and secular. Like sometimes we could focus on the gospel, but we can widely share a blog post without considering the gospel implications of that blog. Or we can go as a group to see a movie and we really don't have to think about or talk about the gospel implications of that movie. What or how is that movie representing God? How is that movie representing us as, as creatures, as the ones who have been created? How is that movie representing redemption? What's redemptive in that movie? Is it faith in Disney or is it faith in God that that movie's representing? I'm not saying don't go see the movie, but I'm saying we separate it out as though we can just kind of take a break from all this gospel-centered stuff at times. Or we can have our gospel-centered conversations in covenant groups but it's okay to just talk. I mean, women will say, well, I, I don't mind going to group, but you got to have some times when you just talk. What is just talk? What is it? Would somebody explain it to me? You know what I think it is? If I say it in my heart, if I want to just talk to one of my closest friends, what I usually want to do is talk about somebody else. I don't really want to just talk about me and what God's doing in my life or her life. I really want to just gossip. 
And that's not always the case. But we have to check ourselves in that whole thing of let's just talk. Let's just talk about our husbands, which will always devolve into the lowest common denominator. Because one woman complains that her husband doesn't pick up his socks, and we say, that is just awful, but let me just tell you how awful it is at my house. <laughs> he doesn't just not pick up his socks. He leaves his dirty underwear with his socks. And we just escalate it into that, ain't it awful? You got it bad, let me tell you. That's in our sin nature to do that kind of just talk in that way. That's not a part of gospel-centered friendships because they're not based on preferences or shared culture or personalities or geography or demographics or age. Our relationships are such a constant challenge and an opportunity with this stark choice that Paul gives us in Titus. The stark choice is this. Our relationships can revile God's word or adorn the gospel. That is an either-or. There's no neutrality. Our relationships can either revile the word of God, which is the command, so that women do not revile the word of God, or they can adorn the gospel of the doctrine of God our Savior. I want to talk to you just briefly about some categories of our struggle in our friendships that I think are magnified uh, in, our, in our times. And the first one is perfection, perfectionism and performance. Perfectionism and performance. Um, it's fueled by what Sean Lucas at First Church Hattiesburg calls experiential or inspirational moralism. It suggests... Um, and it's suggested by many celebrity teachers who are primarily teaching scripture from that experiential moralism or inspirational moralism idea. And the starting point of that kind of teaching or false teaching is me. The starting point of that teaching is looking at me, myself, and I, contemplating your navel. Um, and, it, and that message in a delayed way, points to Christ. But it's after you've done everything you can do, then Jesus is your Savior. It misses that Jesus is our righteousness. It misses that truth that Jesus is our righteousness. And the way I see it in my own heart is it leads to self-analysis and it leads to comparisons. And the self-analysis looks like this. If it's a sermon that I've listened to somewhere or an article I've read or a Bible teacher that I've listened to, and I'm going, I really don't have that problem. I can check that one off. I can check that box off. You know, I'm doing okay there. Or if by the other way I'm saying, I was really convicted by that sermon. I was so convicted by that sermon. And I'm going to fast for five days because I was so convicted by this sermon. Or I'm going to, I promise God that I'm going to get up at five o'clock in the morning. Now, God knows if I promise him that, it isn't going to happen uh, unless he wakes me up. Uh, but you, you see where we make that kind of decision because we've checked a box or we can't check a box uh, after that particular teaching. I believe that this performance and perfectionism 
that in some ways the blogosphere and social media are a petri dish for this kind of narcissism. And I, I, I wrote that down, and my friends in the odd quad said, that is a great phrase. Even the techie did. You know, that's a great phrase. And God confirmed it. I'm going to tell you how he confirmed it. On Monday afternoon, I had a weekly conversation with one of my dearest young friends in the whole wide world. I've known her since she moved to New Orleans to work at Desire Street Ministries before she was married. I talked her into getting married to this man she's married to because she kept pushing him away. And I knew he was going to tell her he was done with her. And he, he verified that at our dinner table just a couple of months ago. He said, when she went to London, I said, if she doesn't come back and want to marry me, I'm over her. That, I'm done. But Ben and Stephanie have four children now. He serves at St. Rock um, Community uh, Development Corporation. They attend St. Rock Church, which is one of our PCA churches. That's a particularized church in, um, in um, urban New Orleans. And Stephanie and I have just had this fast friendship. So we're talking on Monday afternoon. Out of the blue, she says to me, I just got off Facebook. My jaw dropped. I said, why, Stephanie? She's a young woman like half of you are. She said, I found myself agonizing over how I was going to present myself on Facebook and how people were going to perceive my post. And I couldn't get away from that agony of every post and how it was, I was going to look how my children were going to look. And she said, I found myself comparing myself, reading these Facebooks and blogs voraciously of women that I just barely know and wondering why I can't measure up to be the kind of mother they are. And she said, I, it's not good for my soul, Laura. And I said, no, it's not. And she said, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not going to use it for information for my Bible study group and that kind of thing. But she said, I cannot be bound to those Facebooks right now. It is a matter of liberty, but it is dangerous in terms of that perfectionism and performance that most of us struggle with. Um, that's the false teaching of ex existentialism. Did you notice that I didn't put a question on your list? What do you do? Because we identify ourselves as what we do. That is the false teaching of existentialism. Social media has seemingly, to me, y'all are going to laugh. Some of you won't even know what I'm talking about. I think it's replaced the bumper stickers that say, my child's a straight-A student. <laughs> or, the whole, or the whole series of standards for homemaking, which started with Betty Crocker in my life and Martha Stewart in Pinterest now. I mean, and I remember thinking about my ex-daughter-in-law in her early years of marriage to our son and thinking, because she would have stacks of Real Simple and Martha Stewart, and they would be thumbed through and just ragged and pages turned in. And I'm thinking, that must be agony to have that standard constantly before you as a wife and a mother and a homemaker, to have that kind of standard that. It must be awful because there's not, I mean, real simple does not get created real simply. <laughs> I mean, that is the truth. It does not. And, uh, you know, my dear friends in my community who have been so awesome in my life, who were in their 80s and 90s and entertained royally with the silver polish and all that, they had an army of the help to pull that off. They did. And so those 
those kinds of comparisons and that kind of competition. What's the result in our friendship? It's that self-centered competition and pride, or it's self-centered defeatism and judgment. And that's where I'm the most guilty. All of a sudden, I really think you just really aren't very spiritual if that's the most important thing to you, because I know I can't get there, so I'm going to just cut you down to size by judging your standard and saying, you got the wrong standard, I've got the right standard, because I can't keep up with your standard. So we're, we're sort of damned if we do, damned if we don't, in terms of that competition and, self, and self-centered and uh, pride about it. What's the truth? This is the gospel grid. What is the truth? My identity is in Christ, his blood and his righteousness. I love this um, verses from the hymn, Jesus Cast a Look on Me. All that feeds my busy pride, cast it evermore aside. Bid my will to thine submit. Lay me humbly at thy feet. Make me like a little child of my strength and wisdom spoiled. Seeing only in thy light, walking only in thy might. Am I willing to pray that God would spoil, would, that, that he, would, he would take away, he would spoil, he would make my strength and wisdom rotten. That he would make it rotten. That he would cast aside everything that feeds my busy pride. That's a bold prayer. Every time we sing that hymn, we're praying that. Do we really want him to do that? But that's the repentance part. The truth is our identity is in Christ. We've been designed to be helpers. And he's restoring that design. And the truth is in repentance. The truth is also in faith, praising Jesus that he is our righteousness and perfection. And our prayer is, Holy Spirit, turn my eyes to you. Cause me to see and accomplish the good works God has prepared in advance for me. And rejoice in my prayer. I'm rejoicing that God has promised to complete the good work he's begun in me. He's promised it. He's going to do it. And then there's the second whole thing of formula and advice seeking with the purpose of having a live happily ever marriage, raising good kids who are happy and safe from suffering. The whole definition of safety, we could do a whole seminar on and our our obsession about safe um, in our world. Uh, One time, sometimes I, y'all have already figured out, sometimes I speak before I think. And somebody said to me in our church, because we were going to Desire Street Ministries, and we were taking some kids with us, and they said, is it safe? And I said, well, no, it's not safe. But I think it's probably safer than the fraternity house at LSU. <laughs> and they just looked at me. I do think that. I think that it is safer in the Ninth Ward than it is at the fraternity house at LSU. And um, nobody's asking, is it safe to let them go to the fraternity party when they're senior in high school. Well, some are asking, but some are not. Um, So formula and vice-seeking. And the way that's fueled is by Christian self-help books, blogs and conferences, or seeking methods for emotional wholeness and well-being, even using the scripture, that the scripture is about healing me and making me whole or Making me, make, making me to know how to have, giving me the formula for how to have a happy marriage, for how to hold my marriage together, 
That's not what the scripture is about. That's not the story that God is telling us in his word. He's telling us a story of his redemptive plan for man. And the result in friendships is codependency. That's one of the secular terms for it. But it looks like this. I'm the fixer, rescuer, savior, counselor, and you're the needy, victim, broken sister. And I'm going to tell you this, and you're going to be repaired. You're going to be fixed. As soon as you follow my advice, you're going to fix your marriage. Your kids are going to behave better. Um, It's going to all be healthy, happy, and wise because I've got this advice to give you. Um, It's um, in the scripture, and using the scriptures as a self-help tool, I think it looks like this. I taught Psalm 1 a couple of years ago in my discipleship group. We were using Nancy Guthrie's book on seeing Jesus in the books of wisdom, and she taught someone. And her, the title of that chapter is Who is the Man? Well, we got real with each other because every mother in this group had used someone to try to keep her kids from having bad com- keeping bad company and made them memorize it and made them say it before they went to school and made them say it before they went to bed. And that's not what the psalm's about at all. It's about the man, Jesus. And Nancy just turned it on its head. And women wept that night because they saw the gospel in someone and not a list of thou shalt not or thou shalt. It is that, but it's the gospel. It's the result of the gospel. Um, what's life-giving? The gospel is giving to, given to us in God's word. My friend Donna, who's the Christian educator, says all that advice might be helpful, but it is not life-giving. It is not life-giving because it is not the truth according to God's word. And when we are life-givers, it's because we are bringing the gospel into that conversation and that picture. The gospel is given to us in God's word. This is my confession and repentance. Lord, I want to predict and control every relationship and event. I'm self-righteous, and I want to get a head start on doing it your way so that I and those I love are not vulnerable to failure, pain, suffering, and embarrassment. That's the truth of my repentance before you. I want to get a head start. Because if I know what God wants, and I can keep that to the best of my ability, he owes me safety and security. That's a lie. And that's a lie that the world is telling us. Faith, thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're the way, the truth, and the life, that you have not left us idle words, but life-giving words. I heard Darwin Jordan preach a sermon on that verse from Deuteronomy. These are not idle words. That's been 30 years ago. These are not idle words. They are your life. They are not idle words. They're your life. And he is our life. Thank you that you're sufficient, that you've promised and provided all that we need. Holy Spirit, my prayer, open my eyes and heart to the word, to knowing God more intimately in his character, works, and love. Give me wisdom in your presence and word that I may love well, sharing the truth in my dailiness. And then the last one, are we telling the truth? Are we telling the truth? I noticed in some of your um, women's ministry material that part of your small group ministry is connecting our stories to Jesus and to one another. So I want to challenge you tonight. What's your story? What, what, how's your story being told and what, how's it being perceived? Um, and these kinds of things have always gone on. 
so I'm kind of picking on technology or social media, but it's, it again, it's so in our face. And one of the ways that we're telling our story, especially in social media where it's written down, is the humble brag. And we're doing it with one another when we get together at church too. I just want to tell you how the Lord has blessed me. My child made the dean's list. You know, and the statement starts with I, and we baptize it by putting God in there, that God did it. Um, if you know, if you want to tell your friend that your child did really well, that's okay. You don't have to make it humble because it's, it's not either humble or prideful maybe with your friends to report. But if you're going to report on your child's straight A's, you've got to also be willing to report when he gets kicked out of school. <laughs> that makes us laugh, doesn't it? Because have you ever seen a Christmas letter or a blog <laughs> that tells the real deal? <laughs> I've written it a lot. I mean, one time we were sitting at a dinner at church. It was, it was, I think it was just women. I don't know, but there were only women at the table. And somebody asked me how Greg was doing, and he was not doing well. This is when he was a teenager. He was not doing well. And I went, he is not doing well. You really need to pray for him and for us. You would have thought I had just said he was an axe murderer. <laughs> uh, because that's not how we converse with one another in our culture, is it? Uh, so that humble brag... And then the shallow repentance, the stories that confess our respectable sins, or our confession in our small groups that's all about, I left the dirty dishes in the sink, or I yelled at my husband, or I, so they're sort of universal sins and respectable sins, and the, um, they don't go into that place where the Holy Spirit takes us of that downward, remember the diagram of that downward process of being more and more aware of the enemy within, of the sin that is in our hearts, and of the righteousness of Christ and what he saved us from. So making the cross bigger, that sort of shallow repentance cheats us of how big the cross is. Because Jesus didn't die because you left your dirty dishes in the sink. He didn't. He might have died because you are dealing with irresponsibility and slovenliness, but that's a different thing than leaving your dirty dishes in your sink. It's not your behavior. It's the heart that God has called into repentance. And then there's the gotcha brag. Not just the humble brag, but the gotcha brag. And the, my, my friend, Jane Petit, was going through some of this with me She's the former uh, coordinator of women's ministry for our denomination. And um, cute, I don't know why I always have these little bitty friends, but um, <laughs> cute, cute little southern lady. And she said, I recently heard from a friend that blogs were being used as a hammer for her heart, on her heart. And this is the way the hammer on the heart looked. I thought that was a great phrase. I'm going to attribute it to her, to Jane. A hammer on her heart. So it looks like this. You make a different school choice for your children. And you wax eloquent on blogs and Facebook and everywhere with former other school choice moms about how wonderful this choice is. So what we do 
in that, in that kind of brag is to think about if we've left a church, in this instance that I was hearing about, these people had left the church and they are going on and on and on about how perfect their new church is. And it was a hammer on the heart of this leadership wife. It was shredding her. She quit reading it, which was a wise thing to do. And yet, think about your listener. Think about your reader. How is someone else reading your story that you're telling? How is that story being perceived? As you tell your story in social media, as you tell your story in conversation, if you tell your... We are accountable for the ways. The result in friendships is a continuing focus on our experience and our achievement. And I, I become the main character in my story. It's a failure to consider others before ourselves, to think about our hearer, our listener, our reader. And it causes alienation and division and hurt, deep wounds that come from that kind of way that we tell our story. The truth is gospel-centered friendships are the fruit of gospel-centered conversations and stories. They're the fruit of stories that start with Jesus that our sisters are built up and encouraged. The scripture calls us to build one another up, to encourage one another, to challenge one another with grace and truth grounded in God's word. My confession, Lord, I want to be the star of my story. And I want to use conversations to make myself the hero, hide my sin, build myself up by tearing others down and set myself up as the judge of other stories. That's my repentance to you. That's exactly how I want to use my story. I'm guilty of it tonight. I want to use my story to make me look better, that you would approve of me because one of the idolatries of my heart is people-pleasing. Um, and that, that desire for you to like me, for you to be impacted, for you to soar because Barbara came and spoke. That's making me the story of my story. And we thrive on that celebrityism in our culture. We make teachers and speakers and preachers, the star of the story. Um, whether they want us to or not, we do that. So faith, Jesus prays and thanksgiving for you that you are the friend of sinners, <clears throat> that you call us into your story as your friends, that you lay down your life for us enduring the cross and despising the shame for us, the joy set before you, that you laid down your life for us. And my prayer, Holy Spirit, we plead that you will, by your grace, cause us to count others as more important than ourselves. That you will search our hearts with the light of the gospel and cause us to bow in true and constant repentance. That you will give us humility for radical repentance in our relationships with one another. That you will use as your instrument to us as your instrument to tell the story of Jesus. That as the Jesus Storybook Bible subtitle says, every story we tell will whisper and shout and praise the name of Jesus Christ. Every story we tell to shout his name and praise his name. So we look at this whole idea of redemption and we're going to go quickly because we're almost out of time and I'm going to leave you on time. Um, I want to just quickly tell you some gospel-centered conversations and I have scripture. You're going to have to trust me that I didn't just proof text all this so, and you'll know that. Gospel-centered conversations and stories are one of our chief opportunities in gospel-centered friendships. We just talked about that. 
This one is harder, the second one, pursuing gospel-centered growth and holiness for our friends. In, um, <clears throat> in uh, Colossians 3, Paul talks about teaching and admonishing one another. And it impacts what we say and we do, as well as how we pray for one another, when our goal is the same answer that we talked about on the end. What is the chief end? So if that is our goal for our friend, how does that change our conversation? If our, if our end game with our friends is to see them grow in glorifying God and enjoying Him forever, how does that change our conversations? Um, and that, we have to acknowledge that holiness doesn't happen in a snap. It's not Snapchat. It doesn't happen in a snap and it doesn't happen in a chat. That we're involved with each other in the long obedience in the same direction in the pursuit of holiness. That we've been called into community, pursuing together that goal of holiness and growth in Christ. And then our discernment <coughs> and accountability. The discipline and calling to one another to repentance. And one of your leaders, group leaders said to, to me, I think this was this afternoon, I'm beginning to get tired and confused, but... Uh, that that, um, that accountability is really hard. And I think it's hard for two reasons. One, my husband says about at least once a week, do you love me enough to tell me the truth? Do you love me enough to tell me the truth? That love manifests itself in speaking truth and grace and not ignoring my sin. I'm going to tell you, ladies, he loves me enough to tell me the truth. Jesus does, and so does my husband. And that's tough sometimes. And then, do I love my friends in the same way? I heard Joel Belt say one time, and I think this is true in just magnified in our relationships among women. That is, Joel Belt was the editor of World Magazine. He said, relationships trump the truth in our churches relationships trump the truth. Not gospel-centered friendships, but relationships. We are avoiding the truth to preserve what we call a relationship when we don't hold one another accountable. Gospel-centered conflict resolution. Unity is not pretending that there are no differences. Unity is not pretending that you've never had a conflict in your small group because that small group's not growing if you hadn't had a conflict and haven't had a disagreement, or haven't seen things in a different way, and had to come to some resolution of that conflict. And sometimes that requires, always it requires forgiveness on everybody's part for that conflict resolution. And sometimes it requires even taking it to the elders and saying, we need help making peace between ourselves in the church. Women divide churches because we're not willing to healthy in a healthy, biblical way, face our conflicts. So we go talk about it to everybody except the person with whom we have a conflict, and we avoid them like we, we, just, we, we alienate. We put them outside the camp because we're not willing to love enough to, to, to make peace between that sister. Gospel Center, we don't ever leave by ourselves either. We don't ever alienate somebody by ourselves. We always bring company with us, like going to the restroom. We always bring somebody with us 
when we alienate a sister because we've got a conflict with her. And then gospel-centered partnership. That I mean, your group leaders looked at this this afternoon. That as we live together, adorning the gospel of the and the doctrine of the of God our Savior, then we are in partnerships. We are in partnership in uh, fellowship in the means of grace. I promise you, when you're in a gospel-centered friendship, the Lord's table is different. The Lord's table is different because the Lord's table is not just about me and God. It's about us and God. And the Lord's table is different when you're in gospel-centered friendships. And um, all of the means of grace are different. Supporting the work and peace and purity and ministry of the church is different because we're building one another up and encouraging it. And we're doing it with arms linked, shoulder to shoulder. It's not one woman being the VBS director until Jesus comes back. It's that we are doing that together as we have that kind of gospel-centered partnership. The most important thing, I believe, Somebody said it this afternoon in training, gospel-centered prayer. Actually, Margaret said it to me on the way to the hotel. Gospel-centered prayer. For me, the way gospel-centered prayer has taken hold in my relationships is praying scripture for you. Um, Because I have all kinds of bright ideas how to pray for you. But I don't know what God's will is. And yet, God's word is very clear. And so when I pray for my church, I pray the Pauline prayers a lot for my church and for the leadership of our church. The prayers that say, Lord, give them wisdom, fill them with the knowledge of your will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And if a friend calls me, a friend of mine had surgery for cancer yesterday, and I I said, I'm praying this two Psalms for you so that she can go and read. She knows exactly what I'm praying for her. God's word is powerful and never returns void. And my series of prayer phrases can be very empty. But when God gives me a place to go in his word to pray for that person, to pray for my husband, scripturally, it's a whole different gospel-centered prayer life. And that's where your intimacy comes from. Not only in praying for one another, but praying with one another. That, I mean, you can talk hours on end and never achieve the intimacy you're going to achieve when you go as a group, as friends, as a pair, whatever, before the throne of God together, talking to Him and hearing one another talk to Him. That's where your true gospel-centered intimacy comes from, is in that prayer, in that prayer for and with one another. So I encourage you that that is one of our opportunities. Now, living happily ever after. Again, we want our kingdom relationships here and now. We want heaven on earth in our friendships. We want to practice serial relationships to keep up the pretense. So if we have a honeymoon and it's over, we're going to go on to the next set because we really want that kingdom to come on earth. And it's a struggle. It is a real struggle. And yet, when my sister went to heaven... The hope of eternity began to be nurtured in me in a different way. And one of the ways that Jesus has nurtured that hope is through hymns. We're not going to go over all of them, but I just want to tell you that when my church stands and sings (coughs) 10,000 times 10,000, oh, then what raptured greetings on Canaan's happy shore, what knitting severed friendships up where partings are no more. 
Then eyes with joy shall sparkle, that brimmed with tears of light. Orphans no longer fatherless, nor widows desolate. That's where we're headed. And we're rehearsing for it every time we have a gospel-centered conversation and relationship. We're rehearsing for it. We're getting prayer. We're getting ourselves ready for it. We're preparing for that. So this is my prayer for you as women at Fort Worth Press. This is not about a voice. It's about emotion. So my prayer for you is that you will be known by the invitation of the hymn we're going to sing. Darwin actually wrote the tune to this hymn that we're going to, I think we're going to use. I don't, we're not going to do it? Okay. So just look, just look at the, uh, the words of it. Um, <clears throat> that Fort Worth Press will be known as a place of, of redemption. <clears throat> Let me fix it. Of the stories of the redeemed that show forth the light of the story of Jesus, our Redeemer, and that poor, wretched, weak, and wounded sinners will find an open door, the needy a welcome, the bruised and broken with no references and recommendations will be seen. Did you see them? Did you see them Sunday? And that the helpless will be pursued for a gospel-centered friendship with Jesus and with you. That's my prayer for you as the women in this church. Why? Because we are the very same sinners who Jesus, full of pity and power, is able to call sinners who he gives the Spirit to know our need and to come to him. None but Jesus. None but Jesus. He's issued that invitation over and over. Come, weak and wounded, over and over. I want you to issue the same invitation to one another and to the stranger.